Uh, we're diving into a new series together, a series that we're calling Hearing God. And this is kind of an interesting topic. Uh, it's interesting because I think your first assumption would be living in the 21st century here in Chicago, if you were to say to a coworker, uh, let's say, hey, have you ever heard from God? You'd think the answer would be no. But I encourage you to try it this week uh, to go to a coworker and ask because I've been hearing very interesting stories. In fact, I would guess if I asked here around this room, as much as it seems strange that you could hear from God, I would guess most of you probably have a moment or a time, could maybe have been out in nature, maybe there was something uh, really beautiful or moving, a music or a song, maybe it was in a church setting, maybe it was on your own, maybe we even have here some stories about visions or dreams that still are happening. Like This is an actual live conversation, and if you ask around, more people than you'd think would tell you, I have actually heard from God, which I think brings up a really important question for us to wrestle with as a community. How do we hear from God then, right? Like what was happening that allowed us to hear from God? So this is going to be a really fun uh, scripture passage for us to dive into. We're going to take the next four weeks to talk about what it looks like to hear from God. But before we return to our scripture, I wanted to share with you two of my own stories, two of my own stories that might resonate with you of hearing from God. The first happened when I'm 16. So go back in the years, you've got young, innocent, fresh-faced John, less facial hair, right? Uh, and as I was 16, I had this chance, opportunity to, I grew up in the church, uh, my parents actually were in ministry, so I was around ministry all the time, and I did this weird thing during my summers that I would go on missions trips. Uh, so this one in particular, I had been over to Europe, we were helping do all this work with different churches, the missions trip was ending, and we happened to be in London, which is quite exotic and cool, and while I'm in London, we're sleeping on the floor uh, in a Baptist church in sleeping bags, so that was not exotic, nor cool, uh, that was <laughs> painfully uncomfortable, and while we were there for these two days, they were encouraging us to journal, to spend some time in prayer, to listen, and actually there was this last day where we were meant to be in silence, and so I spend about six hours in silence, and I'm angsty as a 16-year-old. I'm wrestling with who I am. I'm asking these big questions, but I've been on a missions trip. I've been thinking, praying, talking to God a lot. And there, at 16, I still remember, with the sun setting, a random Baptist church on the outskirts of London, I have this profound experience of God, the culmination of wrestling, asking, searching. And I hear almost audibly, like in some of you who have had these experiences, you know what I mean? Like the presence was palpable and God tells me, I love you this much. And I almost see Jesus. And it's, it's weird. I know it's kind of hard to explain or understand. But in this moment, I, I just, I had it. I felt it. I have never experienced God's presence quite as powerfully as I did that summer at 16, hearing God tell me that he loved me. Now that's story number one, which is beautiful and wonderful. Story number two happens a short two and a half years later when I'm 19 years old and I happen to be a college student right down the road from here at Moody Bible Institute. I'd moved to Chicago at this point. I'm a freshman, uh, and so that means that I am not sleeping at all, <laughs> means I am hyper insecure, and all of my friends are also hyper insecure, which is a really fun, potent cocktail for any of you who survived freshman year. Um, I'm approaching the finals, uh, my first finals, and I was, a, I was a mess. You know, I was trying so hard. I'd always gotten good grades. I was trying to get all these good grades, but when you don't sleep, apparently, uh, you don't get very good grades. And so uh, that was kind of my conundrum. And as I'm wrestling, as the end of the semester is approaching, I go to do the thing 
that had helped before in the past. I go to hear from God because I'm like, I, I just need a word. I just need God to give me some encouragement. You know, two and a half years ago, God told me he loved me. Maybe I'm going to get to experience that again. And so it's December. I'm walking down LaSalle to Lincoln Park, actually. And as I set out, I'm determined I am not going to leave Lincoln Park until I get a chance to hear from God. And as I'm walking down this cold, dark night, uh, <laughs> underslept, right, like insecure, a total mess, um, the hardest thing was that as I'm walking down this road, nothing is happening. I'm, I'm just walking, and it's nothing, and I can't hear from God, and I can't sense God, and I don't know why this is happening. And I finally get to the park, and I remember I sit on a bench, and I'm kind of waiting on a bench, and I'm really angsty, and uh, tragically, nothing happens. I, I do not experience God. And I, having grown up in the church, um, having always sort of sensed God, believed in God, um, I, I have the first time in my life this profound despair well up in me that goes, like, does God not exist? Like, where, where is God in this terrible moment when, like, I need God so much, but God's not appearing to me the way that I need him to? any of you had that experience. I share both of these stories because, my hunch is, you probably, like me, have tasted some of both worlds, right? You've probably had some times in your life where there have been these radical, like, yes, faith, Jesus, God, love, like, I get it, God's real, this is awesome, church is amazing, and then there's probably been other seasons where you too have been walking on a cold, dark night, and you've been asking, you've been searching, You've been wrestling, and God seems nowhere to be found. So I think if we're going to ask the question, how do we hear from God? I think we need to hold both these stories. We need to turn to the scriptures, and we're going to find together this morning that surprisingly, uh, the New Testament speaks directly to this kind of moment, this moment of pain, this moment of pressure, this moment of searching, but also this moment of possibility. So if you have a Bible... Would you turn with me to Luke 23? We'll put it up on screen if you don't. Luke 23, starting in verse 13. We're going to look at this fun passage. I love this story. Let me go ahead and set the context for you so you can get your imagination working here with the scriptures. Uh, the setting is, it is likely Sunday after Jesus has been crucified on Friday. And here's what's helpful to think and to know. Uh, Passover had been happening in Jerusalem, which normally meant every year that 100 to 200,000 pilgrims would come to Jerusalem. So the city just massively would swell. Everybody's there. It's kind of like the big festival. It's lots of religion, but it's also a lot of political pressure. So the Roman uh, Empire would get really nervous every Passover because this was the most Jewish people sort of compacted into the promised land, asking big questions like, why is Rome overseeing us. And in this particular Passover, this incredible teacher named Jesus of Nazareth, who had been known to do miraculous healings, who had been said to feed 5,000 people uh, bread out of nowhere, and who even, the rumors were going around, had risen a man named Lazarus from the dead. This Jesus had come for Passover, had gotten into yet another tussle with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and then because uh, they were nervous, they went to one of his closest followers. And if you were into the gossip scene, you probably would have heard, did you know he was betrayed 
by one of his 12 who followed him. And they took him and they put him on trial and the Roman Empire didn't really want to kill him, but then they took him to the cross anyways and they crucified him with a sign over his head that said, King of the Jews. And that was that. If you would have been in Jerusalem at this time, you would have been talking. And so naturally, we open then to the scene of two disciples. So we're told these were two people who at the very least were interested in what Jesus was doing. They were kind of around Jesus. They were tracking. They were following him. They were excited about some of the things Jesus was starting to teach, some of the ways Jesus was starting to talk about how this new reign or kingdom of God was going to appear. And yet, these two disciples, having started connecting to this movement, have now found themselves returning home. The party is pretty much done. Uh, The movement is over. Jesus is dead. And so they're trying to figure out what to make of this, probably saying things like, you know, what was it that was drawing us to Jesus? What did we hope was going to happen with Jesus? And so we find, verse 13, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Okay, hold on. This is just too fun, right? This is why this is such a great story, because Jesus is dead at this point, right? Like, everyone knew Jesus was dead, and Jesus hasn't really shown up to too many people yet. And yet these disciples are walking, and you've got to ask yourself, why does Jesus appear to these two? Right? These aren't part of his inner circle. These aren't part of the 12. These aren't necessarily major political religious figures. We don't know much about them. But we're just told these two are walking, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears and starts to walk with them. Uh, Now, we are told they were kept from recognizing him. It's a little mysterious, but it seems like God is doing something intentional in this moment. And as the story keeps going, this is what Jesus chooses to ask them. This is verse 17. He says, What are you discussing together as you walk along? Isn't that delightfully playful? (laughs) Jesus knows. Everybody's talking about it. Jesus was dead. The man has holes in his hands, and he chooses, you know, to walk up next to them and say, hey, what are you you guys talking about, (laughs) right? So great. Uh, This is now the following verse. They stood still, their faces downcast. These people cared. They cared about this movement they were connected to. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And of course, here's what Jesus says, verse 19. What things, he asked. <laughs> so playful, so, so interesting. Um, and this is how the story keeps going. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And listen, the politics got involved. The chief priests and our ruler handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they, the Romans, crucified him. And here's verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I find if you're kind of tracking with the flow of the story, sort of the beautiful picture it's starting to paint, the reason why I think this story helps us so much in hearing from God is that it actually starts with a moment of complete disillusionment. This is the moment of we had hoped. Did you catch that? These guys were bought in, they tasted it, they saw it, they were anticipating, they were exciting, they were even starting to figure out, like, maybe this is going to matter to us, maybe this is really going to pull us along. And yet now, because of this death, because of this intrusion to the story, because Jesus was cut off, now they're saying, honestly, 
to someone, a complete stranger walking along with them, you know, we, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. The hope is gone, and yet there's a bit of a haunting, isn't there? Like, it's an acknowledgement about how important this could have been if only this had not let them down. I think many of us, as you look statistically, sociologically right now, many of us in the city, many of us who grew up in the church, many of us who are coming out of either evangelical context or Catholic context or Protestant context, I think many of us could associate with this phrase, we had hoped. You remember that experience of being a teenager and getting told some of these mysteries about Jesus and God, and you start thinking, wow, this could shape everything. This could change my life. And yet then you hit college, and things get hard, and life gets messy, and you start to say to yourself, we had hoped this was going to make a difference. We had hoped this was going to matter. Um, There's a whole movement right now, a whole movement you've probably heard of if you're on Twitter or you're out there, called the Exvangelical Movement. Any of you seen this? this is connected to a lot of really tragic things. So unless uh, you know, you've been mostly keeping your head out of the social media sphere, there's all kinds of scandals that have been connected to the church. I don't need to tell you about all of them. <laughs> there's a lot. You can find them. Um, there's all kinds of even sadder stories, not just of sort of big picture scandals, but of people's individual experiences. Uh, I've been on Instagram. I've been on TikTok. I've heard and I've seen stories of people who had a bruising encounter in the youth group. They had a bruising encounter with a pastor. Somebody in their church, somebody in their small group blew up uh, their whole faith and has messed the story around. And as you hear this story, these stories over and over and over again, all you hear is this refrain, we had hoped, right? Like faith did matter, but now it doesn't seem to matter anymore. I've been trying to get my head around uh, all of this, having grown up in the church, having seen this happen to a number of friends, a number of uh, family members even. And a- as I've tried to understand it, there is a very um, interesting set of thinkers who are often put forward that sort of helpfully explain why this movement isn't just something connected to an experience. This is part of a broader a movement, a broader ideology, a broader cultural moment that we find ourselves situated in. So I just want to walk you through three thinkers that connect to what I want to call the cycle of suspicion. The cycle of suspicion. Uh, These thinkers are unfortunately all German. (laughs) They're all from the 19th century, so it's kind of a boring group if you ask me, just personally. Um, But you've probably heard all these names going back to you know, freshman year intro to philosophy class. Uh, the cycle of suspicion includes Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Everybody heard Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche had, among, uh, like, lots of brilliant thoughts. He was a very insightful philosopher. If you read him, he's deeply compelling. But Nietzsche's whole philosophy and ideology comes down to this idea. Life equals power. So whoever has power has control over your life. And as you read Nietzsche, as, the more you get swept into it, you actually start to see... Nietzsche's thoughts play themselves out on HBO shows, right, about succession or Game of Thrones. Um, Nietzsche kind of seeps into the culture that you start to notice to to yourself, like, hey, I don't have that much power. Why does my boss have his power? Why, Why does my boss have her power? Why don't I get access to the power that they have? And the more you sort of roam with Nietzsche, you can sometimes helpfully throw off powers that are over you to kind of gain access to the power for yourself, but ultimately the belief, the core 
of Nietzsche's whole worldview is that at the end of the day, all life is, is whoever has the power. Now, Nietzsche is not alone. He's connected in this cycle of suspicion to another name you've probably heard. Goes in and out of the airwaves, on the news all the time. This is Karl Marx. Um, Karl Marx is interesting because he suggests life is possession, right? So Marx was a materialist. He was very clear that all we have is what's in front of us. Uh, if, if you have access to the goods, to how the goods are being made, to the manufacturing of the goods, then you are in control. You're the one who possesses influence over all society. You see how he's pretty connected to Nietzsche. Um, but Marx is kind of interesting that he tells us this, this belief, this ideology, hey, life is about possession. So, like, so get as many possessions as you can. Be in control of as much of your life as you can. Protect what you have. And somewhat dangerously, Marx's whole... Uh, idea is that if you don't have possession at some point, you're going to rebel and you're going to take possession back for yourself. So if you are out of possession, take back possession. Uh, this is Marx's encouragement. Here's the last one, final German of our fun cycle of suspicion. This is uh, Sigmund Freud. And Sigmund Freud's whole thing, and I put these up on the screen for a reason for you, his whole thing is that life is pleasure. Fundamentally, every human being, again, Freud says there's no God, uh, there's no bigger spiritual world out there. All you have is the drive to pleasure. And so this often can look like sexuality. Uh, this often looks like selfishness or greed or control. Freud didn't really care. He says, if you want to understand yourself, you've got to get to the root of the pleasure that you either are getting or that you don't have access to. So these three, why, why am I getting into this? Why did I pivot hard from Jesus on Emmaus to these three? Well, I think these three set us up well to understand why in a moment of deconstruction, in a moment when faith has fallen apart, in a moment of we had hoped, we find ourselves culturally caught in this cycle of suspicion. So whether you recognize it or not, uh, the forces around you, the TV shows that we're watching, uh, oftentimes our politics on both sides, everything's kind of feeding into this sense of, okay, who's in power? Who's got the power? Uh, who's getting access to the possessions? So like, are you in possession of yourself? Are you not? And then who, who's getting pleasure? So like, who's actually enjoying themselves? <laughs> and oftentimes the problem in our cultural moment is nobody is really winning <laughs> in this cycle of suspicion, right? Who's having a good time <laughs> in the moments that we find ourselves? in. Uh, but challengingly, if you try to deconstruct, if you try to step away from the faith that you had, if you try to step away from the beliefs that you were holding on to, my, my fear for you, my heartache that I've watched so many friends go through, is that all you find out in culture right now, apart from God, apart from Christianity, is this cycle of suspicion. And it is a vicious, vicious cycle uh, that can, can help help you understand, you know, free yourself from some former ideologies and constraints. But uh, the reason I put it on screen is to show you it is, in fact, a cycle. that They chase each other. And the more you keep chasing, the more caught up you're going to get until you find yourself, as one philosopher says, in a flattened world. At the end of the day, the cycle of suspicion tells you, this is all you have, this is all there is, get what you can, and then get out. For these disciples, um, I'm struck that if we go back to the story, there's this one interesting line that I've just been pondering this whole week. Um, they are talking to Jesus, and they give a little bit more context to their faith. And I, I think, if you can go with me in the cycle of suspicion, I think they find themselves trapped in deconstruction. Because notice the interesting 
way that they phrase it to Jesus. This is verse 21. Uh, It's the third day since all this took place, verse 22. In addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find Jesus' body. Okay, so that's kind of interesting, right? The women went to the tomb where Jesus was supposed to be, and if you know from the other gospel stories, Jesus isn't there. That's kind of an interesting data point. And yet, notice how they keep going. These women came and they told us they'd seen a vision of angels, something disruptive, something miraculous has been happening, who said Jesus was alive. Okay, so angels are now appearing, telling these women that Jesus are alive. They're taking this report back. This is verse 24. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. Did you catch the tone of that at all? Um, all, I, all I see happening with so many friends, all I see happening in us, and this is, uh, I'm going to wrap this thought up for you and see hopefully if this is as helpful to you as I pray it would be. Many of us get caught in this moment with our faith where we're trying to hear from God and we find ourselves walking on this dark night of the soul and God is not responding to us. God is not there. Something tragic has perhaps, perhaps happened. Maybe there's some suffering going on in your life. And instead of, instead of keeping your eyes up and kind of wondering, hey, is there a chance God's up to something? Is there a chance that someone else might be walking alongside me? Uh, we instead get caught in this cycle the cycle of suspicion, and we find ourselves with data points around us that maybe God is, in fact, up to something, right? Like maybe there are angels and visions and and women and companions who are all going, the tomb is empty. Something's going on here. We don't quite know what it is. Something's happening, and yet these disciples clearly end with this intonation to Jesus, like, but, you know, we had hoped. So it's kind of over. It's kind of done for us. They're walking away. Here's verse 25, and this is where I think we turn from a cycle of suspicion into the reconstructing voice of Jesus. If deconstruction is, is a truly great threat right now, it's a possibility. Uh, you may find yourself at some point deconstructing. Jesus, I think, is going to offer to these disciples a chance to reconstruct, and this is how he does it, verse 25. He says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Here's what's happening in Jesus' reconstruction. Jesus first is going to offer the disciples, step one on reconstruction, is Jesus offering them God's plan. God's plan. Now, I personally dislike the word plan. I actually, I was really wavering. Like, it just feels uncomfortable to me. I think sometimes plan feels uncomfortable because it tempts us to think God is the puppet master up there in our lives, right? Pulling the strings, like, ooh, God knew you were going to get an iced mocha frappuccino this morning, and those calories, you know, he was trying to stop you, but you, you were resisting God's plan, or, or the other option, because we have such a sort of faded view of God controlling every aspect of our lives, the other option is when we hear God's plan, we think, oh, I'm out. I don't really have anything to do with this. Like, what is God's plan? God's plan. God's doing what God wants. What does that have to do with me? Here's what Jesus shows them. He takes them back to the scriptures, and he walks them through the pattern of how God operates through death and suffering. This would have, of course, been an incredible lesson from Jesus. We can only ponder where he would have taken them. 
But I, I can't help but, but notice that like, the deeper thing Jesus is offering them is he isn't just giving them a Bible study. Jesus is actually giving them a story of the world. Jesus is saying to them, there is something bigger than just your life and your current circumstance that God is up to in our world. Look at how God has been faithfully operating a plan. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? I think for many of us, the struggle has been uh, that when we hit a snag in our life, for instance, when I'm 19 and I'm walking down that road, the only thing I am fixated on is my plan, right? My plan is to get to the finals. Uh, My plan is to find a girlfriend who becomes my wife. My plan is to be accepted and loved by my friends. And what Jesus is doing with these disciples is he's saying, hey, your pain is actually part of a bigger plan that God is up to. God's plan actually has a, has a purpose, has a place sure for... Oh, sorry? For your... <laughs> Siri doesn't understand, so we're, we're struggling a bit, but hopefully she'll get there by the end. Um, God's plan has a place even for your pain in it. And I think what's so, so beautiful here about Jesus is that as he takes them through the plan... He's now going to move them to this intimate moment that's going to happen around the table. This is the second step in Jesus' reconstruction. This is verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Notice for just a second, uh, we don't fully know what Jesus is up to. Like, Jesus has been a little mysterious this whole story. He shows up knowing they won't recognize him. He provokes them with questions, sort of drawing out their doubts so that he can then offer them God's plan. Then I love here, if you pay attention, it says Jesus went as if to keep going and required them to urge him to stay with them. No, 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 can you you linger with us? Can you stay a little longer? Like you've been talking about this plan that God has, this pattern of how God moves and takes takes pain and actually brings out glory and redeems it. Could you stay with us at dinner? And so Jesus went in to stay with them. Now this is verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. It says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. This is, this is a verse that if you're moving quick, Jesus is at a table, they're going to eat. Uh, the disciples recognize Jesus, right? But if you move slow you notice that Luke has actually used these four verbs in the Greek uh, just a few chapters before when Jesus was with his 12 disciples at a table before the Passover in which he was sitting with them and he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them when he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood offered for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. The early church started to notice in this scene, wait a second, is, is Luke trying to get our attention that when we are lost and we're struggling, when we don't quite understand what's going on, that Jesus actually wants to meet us and reveal God's plan to us right here at Jesus' table? Is it possible, and 
This is where, through the history of the church, there's been all kinds of discussion and debate. What, what is communion? What is happening here in this moment? Like, what is taking place at communion? Is it possible that Jesus, more than anything else, is just trying to offer his presence to us here at this table? That for those of us who go through our week and we get distracted, we get bogged down, we get tired, maybe we even get close, closer and closer to doubt, closer and closer to despair, that what Jesus intended was for us to gather on Sunday and to have this moment where someone stands before you and says, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of him. 